This episode is dedicated to Elvire Arwamenou, who transitioned on February 21st, 2012, and to her beloved husband, Désiré Arwamenou, who joined her on February 14th, 2014. Un grand amour m'attend. An unconditional love awaits me. Welcome to the Common Reality Podcast, the place where we build bridges between humans. Our guests share powerful stories on the experiences that have shaped their opinions and fed their worldviews. We listen with the resolve to understand. We imagine ourselves holding their hands, looking straight in their eyes, and after absorbing their story, being able to say, ha, huh, I get you. I understand. Even when we do not agree, here we choose empathy. I am Moranike, your host. Let's try this. Let's build togetherness. Welcome to episode six. This one is unique. I am telling the story of my beloved sister friend, Agnola who lost both her parents within a couple of years. And so this is the story of the amazing love that her parents shared, of the immense grief that she experienced when they passed away, and her journey towards renewal. Here is Anyola introducing herself. Let me just start by saying I am super honored to be here. I'm also equally honored that you chose to ask me um, that you think that my story is worth telling um, and, you know, that you choose me at a moment where common reality is just starting and picking up. So I really appreciate that. That's one. Um, and two, who's Anyola? Well, I am originally from Benin, currently living in the United States. And I think the most important thing to know about me, at least on this podcast, is that I was lucky enough to have a very condensed 22 to 24 years um, with my parents who were amazing human beings in my eyes, but also in the eyes of others like you, and honored that I can share their story. So a little bit of context. Agnola's dad, Désiré, and my dad, Grégoire, were friends since sixth grade, back in the 60s in Benin. Somewhere along the way, they lost contact. So Agnola and I actually did not grow up knowing each other. Fast forward the early 2000s, I went to DC for the summer, and Agnola's cousin, who I was going to school with in Benin, put me in touch with her brother. In D.C., that's where the, the family lived. So I get to D.C., I call her brother, we get along right off the bat, and after hanging out a few times, he invites me over to their house. And as soon as I step in the house, I find it to be this loving cocoon, this intimate place where you can tell there's a lot of love flowing around. And it's a random weekday, and Agnola's dad comes back from work. And so he sees me and says, hi, young lady, who are you? 
And I'm like, well, I'm Morenike uh, Muni. And he's like, whoa, Muni, like Grégoire Muni? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's my dad. And he looks at me and says, oh, look at you. You're my daughter and you don't even know it. And that's how the two families reconnected again 20 years ago. I love how you tell the story, though, because I can imagine my brother and you hanging out and, and my dad and, and the way he would talk. So I love it. Grief. What did Anyola experience? What did she feel? I read somewhere that grief is love that does not know where to go. I think I can completely relate, at least, to that um, love that doesn't know where to go because to me it really felt like the loss of a home. So that anchor that you've always had, that you could always come to all of a sudden, shatters. And there's no nowhere to go anymore. Um, no one to give your love to, no one to come home to, um, no one to, uh, no one to love you back, basically. And I think the worst part about it is that initially it translates into physical pain. Um, I remember thinking, there is no way that this is my reality, especially when my mom died. And thinking, maybe I can just go to sleep, wake up 24 hours later and be done with this. But then it becomes even worse when you wake up from it and you realize you're still stuck in this reality. And it's, I think it's just the worst when, you know, the crying fits that you're experiencing just feel like they're tearing you apart. Um, and, and it's a kind of pain like no other. So I actually only experienced Anyola parents for a couple of years and hung out with them only a few times. But I remember them being amazing people, so kind, so loving, so decent. You watched them and felt like, yep, this, this is how you're supposed to show up in the world. This is how you're supposed to do life. This is how you work. This is how you love. These are the sacrifices that you make. This is how you set your priorities. And so what was it like to be raised by such phenomenal parents? What was that family life like? Um, let's see. I'll start with what you mentioned earlier, which was the fact that you came into our house and it was it felt so intimate. Um, I think that is something that my parents succeeded in building uh, even all throughout our various moves around the world. Um, and that also makes me think of a friend of mine who visited me in the U.S. and um, who came to my house, met my family. And then later on, he said, he told me, I came into your house and I said to myself, this family has no problems. Um, <laughs> and he was surprised. He said, you know, the way that I walked into your house and how I felt welcome, I had never felt that in any other house ever before. Um, and that's, those are the sort of things that made me realize what a special um, life I had with my parents. And that's why I say that it was a very condensed 22 to 24 years. So, um, we, we moved around a lot. I was, I was born in Belgium. We moved to New Caledonia, came to the U.S. Um, then I studied abroad for undergrad. So we moved around a lot. But throughout it all, it was my mom, my dad, my brother, and me. And we always had a very tight-knit, intimate, as you say, cocoon. And 
What I loved about it is that everywhere we were, whether it was an apartment in Belgium or a home in New Caledonia, it felt like home. We made it a home. And it was a place where we could all come back to, where we could be ourselves, where we could be held, um, where we would be loved, unconditionally loved. And, and, and that's something that I saw um, through my parents' love first and then in the love that they gave the two of us. Um, and it felt like something that some people, unfortunately, in even 50 years with their parents could not experience. And so that's something I'm very grateful for. To give a little bit of a background, so um, in 2011, uh, my mom was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, this happened in the most random way. We were, uh, we were on vacation in Benin. It was an abrupt and harsh end to our family vacation. Um, but she was diagnosed with colon cancer, and she unfortunately passed away just seven months after being diagnosed. Um, and so that takes us to February 2012. And my dad somehow, I, I guess because of the, the pain of losing his wife, um, started developing issues as well um, that we didn't put a name on for the longest time that turned out to be cancer as well. So that was diagnosed in late 2012, early 2013. And then he died in 2014. So those are the two years that uh, broke everything, every model, uh, everything that I had known uh, that tore it all apart. And uh, I was left with my older brother, who I'm very close to, luckily. Um, but at that point, you know, February 2014, it was just him and me all alone. Let's go back to 2011. The family is together on vacation in Benin and realizes that Anyola's mother is sick. So what happened? How did tragedy make way into their lives? Uh, so in 2011, this was summer 2011, uh, the four of us went home to Benin for a short family vacation. Um, at the time, my parents were living in the U.S., my brother was working in London, I was working in Paris, but we all met up in Benin. Uh, so obviously it was bound to be an amazing vacation where the four of us could uh, hang out for a little bit and, and stock up on love, as I love to say, when it was the four of us together. Um, but something happens. My mom, start, my mom starts feeling extremely unwell. Um, she gets a few first tests done in Benin, but we don't put a name on anything. We just know it's bad. And so we have to shorten their trip in Benin. Um, they rush back home to the U.S. where they were still both based. And that's when we started to run deeper tests. And what I remember is uh, being at Georgetown Hospital, um, waiting to see an oncologist who had run a few tests. And um, it's me, my dad, and my mom. So my, bro my brother had gone back to London, and I was staying for a couple more weeks, um, extending my vacation. And the oncologist shows up with a nurse practitioner. Um, and at that point, I hadn't fully figured it out yet, but uh, the doctor tends to deliver news very, you know, in, a, in an almost cold way. And I guess that's their job. Um, and then the nurse practitioner is the one who kind of holds you through it. 
and um, kind of explains what you're going to have to do, how it might feel, where you can find support. And so now I laugh about it, but I always say the next time I see a doctor and a nurse practitioner together, I'll know that it means trouble. Um, but so the, the, the oncologist sits us down and he tells us it's stage four colon cancer. And he really didn't have to, much more to say beyond that. So we had to probe with questions. And at that point, both of my parents were silent. Um, I think my dad, because he knew what it was, but he was just taking it in. My mom, probably because she knew it was bad, but she didn't want to overthink it at that point. And I'm thinking all of these questions at a time. And I didn't even have time to ask all of them. But I at least asked the doctor, does this mean it's really bad and that it's spread and that we can't do much about it. And he says, yes. Um, and I ask him, is it to the point where chemo can't reverse anything? And he says, pretty much, yes. Yeah, so, so I start breaking down. Um, I'm looking to my dad for some sort of comforting eyes and things and don't see any of that. I see utter confusion. And it took him a while to emerge and um, talk, start talking about it again. But at that point, I remember he basically said, and he repeated it to my brother as well and to all of us together, he said, at this point, we need to prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Um, and he kept saying this, he kept saying that all throughout the seven months of, of my mom's illness. But what I also witnessed during that time is his profession of love to her like unending love for her. Um, I think sometimes it might've come across almost on the harsher end, but it was because he was so hopeful. He just wanted her to heal, um, you know, and the way that he would prepare meals for her and he would ask her to eat, but um, she wasn't hungry at that point anymore, but he just really wanted her to eat because he felt that that was what was going to help her heal. Um, and, and the way he organized his life around work and the hospital, um, and, and all the time that they would spend together, you could tell that they were possibly reminiscing about the past, trying to prepare the future, wondering how we would, we would hold it together. Um, and that was something that I loved seeing. Uh, and, and actually, uh, a cute story that I think I had told you um, is that at, at the total end, when my mom was you know, out of energy um, and could not get up from her hospital bed, um, my dad played a salsa, actually a Roomba, a Congolese Roomba song in the hospital because they loved to dance. It was one of their ways of showing their love for each other. And at that point, I think my mom mustered the last little bit of energy that she had to get up and dance a few minutes with my dad. Well, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. What a beautiful, beautiful love story. Was it anxiety-inducing to know that her parents shared a love so big, so strong, so deep, but that one of them was about to transition? And so the tangible experience of that love, the ability to see it, to experience it, was about to convert into something else? Or was it totally comforting to know that these two shared so much love and that that love could help them work through this tragedy that they were enduring at the time. It was absolutely comforting. 
And I speak to my brother about this, Yemi. Um, we speak about this often. Um, there's an interesting sign, even though, you know, I, I don't love to believe in signs. But so my mom died first on February 21st, 2012. And my dad died on Valentine's Day, 2014. And even though, you know, it's, you know, we can say it's a commercial holiday and, and my parents didn't grow up with Valentine's Day and things like that, but they, they sort of bought into the tradition after we moved to the U.S. And I remember since my mom loved flowers, my dad will always gift her huge bouquets of flowers for Valentine's Day. And then when I got old enough, he would wake up, he would wake me up really early uh, on Valentine's Day and say, let's go pick up flowers for your mom. Um, so the fact that he died on Valentine's Day is actually comforting um, both to my brother and me. And I think it to us, it shows that it was true love that he had to die on, on, on lover's day, basically. Um, and it at least tells us that they, that he joined her for a reason because their love was so strong. And it's even to a point where when we had to choose what to write on their tombstone, um, we wrote a very short sentence, which in French is un grand amour matin. Um, and they're buried together in Paris. And so I, I guess that means that it's, it's something like an unconditional love awaits me. There's something very unique and cruelly acute about knowing that your loved one is here in physical form and then learning that they have crossed over that they are no longer here, that they have departed and that you will no longer have access to the experiences that you once shared with them, death, basically. So what was it like for Anyola experiencing the passing of her mother, the transition I'll start by saying that I actually feel like my mom passed way before her physical, long before her physical death. Uh, and the reason I say that is that um, she was one of those unlucky few who did not tolerate chemo well. And so, you know, you're, you're hopeful about chemo because you're expecting that it's going to manage the symptoms of the cancer. But then when the patient doesn't tolerate chemo well, there's a whole other uh, additional medical protocol to um, deal with the side effects of the chemo. And so she was dealing with that very heavy protocol. And so she was exhausted and diminished very quickly after chemo started. So I want to say that uh, even, be, even though there were seven months between the diagnosis and her death, I feel like she sort of passed around month two or three. And I love that you use the word transitioning. <laughs> it, it, it feels much better to say. I'll have to touch on the word transition again, too, because I think it is very interesting. But all this to say that um, I do feel like I lost her early on. And I think that was what made uh, the announcement of her death the most painful. It's that all this time I was hoping that even if it was going to be seven months, that I would have seven real months of connecting with my mom and preparing. And so, you know, the things that I had told myself, and, and actually I'll, I'll have to uh, 
take a step back and actually talk about the fact that her oncologist said because it's colon cancer, which is not the most or the worst, um, that some patients, even at stage four, can live up to five years. And it's it's amazing how you start holding on to the slightest bits of hope. And when the oncologist said that, so the one who was treating her, I, my eyes almost lit up because I thought, okay, five years, I can plan this. I can get married in that time. Maybe I can have my first child and we can talk about the important things and I can be more at peace with the fact that she's transitioning. Um, but those five months actually turned into seven, five years uh, that were predicted actually turned into seven months. And so that was, that was what made it the, the hardest. Oftentimes, At the end of the life of a loved one, we think that we're going to have time to have grand transition conversations. What do you want me to know? What are the last things that you want me to do? What should I keep in mind? What do you want to pass on? But in reality, the illness takes up so much space and time. The food, the resting, the medication, the making sure they're comfortable, the giving them peace and quiet so that they body can recover and regenerate there's just really not that much time there's there's so many mundane tasks that need to be taken care of so that your loved one is comfortable and when there is time for the grand conversations you realize that actually having the conversation in that time signals again to the both of you that this is the end, which is not necessarily what you want to do when there's a moment of lucidity and of joy. You actually want to experience it and not spend time on admin or structuring conversations. So it's very tricky. Back to the story. So what were Agnola's thoughts when her mother passed in that actual moment? It started with a complete blur. Um, I remember when um, my mom's passing was announced, and that was um, a day after I had returned from the U.S. Actually, so so in those seven months when she was sick, uh, I was living in Paris, living and working in Paris, and I think I maxed out all my air miles, um, going back as often as I could. And I had actually returned from my last trip to the U.S. the day before she died. Um, so I get to Paris and we had planned this little prayer with family. Um, so mostly my mom's brothers and sisters, because a lot of them live in Paris. And we were gathered at my grandparents' house. And that seemed normal. You know, I knew that there was going to be a little prayer. I knew there was going to be a couple of us. The only thing that started to get weird was when I realized that my dad was calling a couple times and he had called to speak to each of my uncles and aunts, but he wasn't speaking to me. Um, and I remembered everyone's demeanor was kind of changing. So it just felt, you know, you, you start to feel it. Something was odd. And especially because we had been gathered there for a while, but we hadn't started to pray. So I was wondering, what's the delay? Um, and so finally, I guess my dad was just trying to muster the courage to speak to me and was wondering in what kind of environment I was. Was I ready to receive the news, even though you never really are? And he finally speaks to me. I'm in the kitchen. I remember trying to prepare a meal that I thought I was going to get to enjoy. And he speaks to me and I don't even remember exactly what he said. I'm glad I don't. Um, but he said something like mom's gone now. And I just remember my legs giving out something that you, that I feel like you only see in movies, you know, but my legs literally giving out from under me and 
and asking him, but what do you mean? Like, what do you mean she's gone? Um, and then from there, it's just a blur. But one thing I do remember, and I think this leads me to one of the main things I learned about this experience, the very early part of this experience, is I had a moment of clarity after that. Um, a moment of clarity where I remember I, I, call, I, I wanted to call my brother, actually. Um, and, I, and I said something about how I wanted to make sure that he was going to be as strong as I was. Um, I didn't get to call him because obviously my family wanted me to, to just focus on myself and, and, and they knew that my brother was in London and was being taken care of by other people at that time. Um, but I think I got a moment of clarity where I knew what I was going to do. I was going to honor my mom. I was going to stay strong. I was going to make sure that my brother stayed strong and that my dad stayed strong. But then I think my mistake was to only briefly hold on to that moment of clarity. And then again, after that, I slipped into a haze. Um, that lasted almost too long. Here I remind her that it wasn't a mistake, that there was so much pain. Of course, of course. And I think it's only in retrospect that you think those things. But I, I really think it lasted too long and I should have held on a little longer to that those moments of clarity that I initially had. I think one of the important learnings at that point was, and it, it comes back to the term that you used about transition. Um, I think that the biggest pain is thinking that they're no longer in their physical form, the people that you love. But another is to recognize that, like you said, it's a transition. So it's just this physical iteration of them that ends. And you have to believe that there's another iteration coming, that there's something else that's going to be, the physical is going to be replaced with something else um, to be able to appreciate, to appreciate, I don't know if that's the right word, but to accept that transition, which is something that I had not been prepared to do and that I didn't know how to do and that I didn't even think was possible at the age of 22. Um, but now I've gotten to a point where I almost feel empowered by the little things, the little signs, the people that my parents, I feel, send me messages through. And that is that just brings me so much comfort because I, I can hear it very clearly when I see a little sign or hear a little something that reminds me so much of them. And that almost makes me shiver because it reminds me that they must still be here in some form. Going through grief when my dad passed, I realized that one of the things that really help us cope with death and grief is really taking the time to develop a framework about what we're willing to believe or to think about death. What ideas, what concepts are we going to latch onto during the process? And that framework needs to be strong enough to pacify us while we are in the throes of pain and grief. Imagine a hand on your chest massaging it. And that framework has to be robust enough to make us willing to surrender to what's going on to that transition, to that loss, to that process. And it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you believe there's life after death, whether you believe 
that there's reincarnation, whether you're not sure. It's about being able to say, I've thought about it. It's the same for every single one of us. I recognize my insignificance in front of that process. And I bow to it. I bow and I accept and that's it. I think it takes a while to get to the point where you develop some sort of faith. And I felt the exact same as you did. And it took me trips around the world, um, yoga classes, yoga teacher trainings. I had to realize, even though the, the model, the Catholic model that I had been raised with, I had to realize that it it wasn't necessarily going to work for me in the moments of extreme pain. And I had to accept, even though I had been raised with the Catholic model, I had to accept that it was actually okay to turn to other forms of um, comfort. And in my case, it was yoga. It was the philosophy that goes with yoga. Um, and, and that's where, for example, I, the, the, the term of surrendering, spoke to me much more in yoga than it did through the Bible, for example. Um, and, and, and that's one of the moments where I realized, okay, surrendering is what I need to do, surrendering to the situation, being content with it um, was something that I, I grew more comfortable with um, through my yoga practice. Thank you for reaching the end of part one. This part of the story made me think about the immense power of love. It also made me think about the huge pain and the gaping hole that losing a loved one creates. But as I was talking to Agnola, and as you'll see in part two, I could very much feel that the love that flowed in her family, that amazing love that made all of them thrive, is still very much alive. Talking to her, it was clear to me that love never dies. It survives everything. It continues to heal and to nurture those we leave behind. Part two comes out in a few days. Thank you everybody. And until next time.